So by way of just uh, a few further thoughts before we have tea or coffee, and I, I think it's, I hope what we're trying to do, we have two and a half days to try and come to some, answering some questions, so it's, it's early time yet. Um, we are going through, as you can see, there are, we're talking about the poets you may have heard of and some extra poets you may not have heard of. But what's beginning to emerge, and it's very interesting, already in a day, the questions which I think have begun to float around this sort of subject area over the past 10 or 20 years. Um, the neglected poets, what should we consider as a war poet? Why have we focused on a certain canon, to use the phrase, um, where we've neglected others? And what is historical truth in war poetry? A point I'm just going to at least leave you dangling with at the end of the day because it is a hot topic of debate currently. But I, I wanted to just sort of say a few words about popular poetry because I think it is important um, if we, we pick up this fact, and it's been quoted several times today by um, Riley's English Poetry of the First World War Bibliography about these 2,225 published poets, of which 500-odd uh, were women in 1914 to 1922. We should remember, try and think back to those times, that poetry was incredibly popular. Uh, it's, it's the sort of servant at the feast nowadays. Um, poetry has been uh, neglected, has been sort of relegated, I think, and overtaken by film and drama and the novel, as, as we, I'm sure we would all agree. Um, but not at the time. So the reaction, the critical, the, the outpouring of creative, creativity at the outbreak of the war was quite extraordinary. Um, the, you, you will often hear this, this comment about 100 poems were sent into the Times a day in August 1914. Um, I had to remind the Times of that when they asked me could they point out to some, some poetry from the First World War for a supplement they did a couple of weeks. And I said, why don't you go back and look at your back catalogue because you've got a lot of them. <laughs> Um, but also, if we consider here, for example, uh, we already heard about Brooks' uh, publishing record. Kipling was republished, I mean, extraordinary amounts. And Georgian poetry, which I've already talked about, fifteen to 19,000. Um, and Tim Kendall, I think, has a nice point put in context. The Wasteland took 18 months to sell, approaching 500 copies. This, these are sort of, whilst these are statistics, they do just show where we, where we have to move ourselves mentally back into that period to understand that. But I wanted to um, pick up a bit on um, the, the Riley anthology because uh, there were a lot of anthologies published in the war. And I've done a bit of analysis of these because what she also does is she prints the names of the poets. She doesn't tell you all the poems there. But you can work these out from the anthologies. Um, if you put to one side anthologies which focus, for example, on naval warfare, where it's just focused on a particular aspect, you look at the general ones... Um, the anthologies which came out during 1914 to 1919 were, were vast. I mean, they were averaging at least 40 poets. Uh, they were, there was a comprehensive sort of collection of uh, writers and poetry there. And I think what we should just bear in mind, I don't know if you can read this, but I, you, we can, I can get around the spreadsheet if you want. The, the names of the poets are not necessarily the ones we would think of nowadays. And that was to come later, which hopefully I'll be able to show you. So as you... You move into the 1920s. Yes, um, I think there's a pointer here. Sassoon is there. He is quite popular, as you can see, in the 1920s. These are the number of times that they're represented in an anthology. So six anthologies publishes Sassoon or a number of poems. 
But for example, here Nichols is very high up. Brook is still there, but Graves, Grenfell are still are, are there. And what you can see when you start to look over these over the years, you can see what we might imagine as the cannon beginning to form before your eyes. Um, that's the 1930s. You can see now Owen is a popular choice, but he wasn't. If we go back to 1919, quite obviously his first edition wasn't published until 1920. In the 1940s, the, the, the range of writers begins to thin out. Um, so Graves is there, Owen is there, Rosenberg is now there, Sassoon is there. But you can see so some of the major poets that we would have known are not, not represented. Now, this is partly due to the fact that there were not as many anthologies about the First World War published in 1940. Um, they were generally mixed up in anthologies about war poetry as a whole, but it is beginning to see it thinning out. And then we move into the 60s. The 50s was quite a poor uh, decade for publishing on this. And now we can see, I think anything above this line here is where you can start to see the canon forming. Now, so that I save your necks, what you can then do is you can then look at the poets. Uh, decline is probably the wrong word, but not there as much. Now, Brooke is always there. But in terms of the number of anthologies, the number of ones that included them, there is a bit of a decline. There certainly is for Binion, apart from one poem, and Chesterton really is sort of like disappearing. Now, you can sort of take what you want from this, but what I'm trying to show you is that the decades during the war, the time during the war, and then the decades afterwards have shaped our perception of war poetry. And I think that is important. But more importantly... The editorial choices made by anthologists have shaped our interpretation of war poetry. It's a point I'll pick up in my last uh, comment. Continued popularity, uh, Sorley and Sassoon. Sassoon obviously was a, a published poet um, during the war and then retains his popularity. Although I suspect, and I haven't done the analysis, if we look at the anthologies from the last few years, while Sassoon will be there the proportion of the volume devoted to Sassoon will be changing because other poets have risen uh, in popularity, such as uh, Owen, Rosenberg, Thomas and Gurney you could put up here as well. And one which I will mention tomorrow, very briefly, just to show how you can start to use all these sorts of things when you're looking at other poets, David Jones, who you wouldn't find really represented up till about the 60s. Now, war poetry, we've, we've said a few things about this um, in terms of what is popular. And I have sent around a handout here, um, which I'll just refer to very briefly. Uh, as already mentioned by Elisa, there was a wealth of poetry that comes out quite early on, um, which is very patriotic, is talking about Britain's cause, is trying to sort of increase uh, recruitment, volunteers. As has already been said, why that might decline in 1916 because of conscription is, is obviously, a, a, there's a clear relationship there. Um, when the States comes into the war, you don't need to be making such a valid call, a case for, for Britain's cause, etc. And so on. So there is war poetry quite early on that, that, that celebrates this, this patriotism. Uh, and the other thing which I don't think has been mentioned yet is that poetry or literature was seen as a weapon of war. So some of you may be aware that in 1914, in September 1914, Masterman, C.F. Masterman, calls a meeting where he brings some of the, it reads like a who's who of Edwardian and Georgian poetry together 
And they think, how can they mobilise poetry and other forms of writing as a propaganda tool? And then there is a declaration in the, t- in the Times. So it is not surprising, therefore, to see a lot of patriotic verse coming out in 1914 from the likes of Hardy and so on. Um, and this one, I believe Robert, Robert Bridges was mentioned. So this is from Wake Up England. Uh, type of stuff that you will see. The poet laureate here, right? Thou careless await, thou peacemaker fight, stand England for honour and God guard the right, thy murph lay aside, thy cavalry play, the fiend is upon thee, and grave is the day. Um, I think I've, I've mentioned this to other people before. This, there was an amusing review of this that they thought that this poem could single handedly win the war because if the Germans read it, they'd explode with laughter. Um, but perhaps a more Maybe one could liken it to Jesse Pope a bit, but the, I don't think the word odious is too off here with Harold Begbie. But what will you lack, Sonny? What will you lack when the girls line up the street shouting their love to the lads come back from the foe they rush to beat? Will you send a strangled cheer to the sky and grin till your cheeks are red? But what will you lack when your mate goes by with a girl that cuts you dead? Appealing to that sort of... Uh, idea that you know you won't be seen as a man you won't get the girl if you don't go out and fight and this is fairly typical of the types of poetry now we should not assume that all taste went out the window in 1914 Um, many people didn't like what they saw this was an anonymous poem called Song in Wartime I think was published in 1914 at the sound of the drum out of their dens they come they come the little poets we hoped were dumb The little poets we thought were dead, the poets who certainly haven't been read since heaven knows when. I think think it's Sorley who says, thank God Kipling hasn't published a poem yet. He immediately then goes and does just that, Kipling. Now, I think the other thing to say about poetry is why it is uh, so popular is because it is easy to do. It is easy to have a go at. Um, And... Whilst we probably won't have time to talk about this, but you could say this is very popular poetry, the type of stuff that was sent back, sentimental postcards, of which there were hundreds of thousands, millions were sent back with a, a, a bit of doggerel verse almost back to your loved one and so on, and these often came out in series. But I've, I like this one here. It's uh, an example of... Um, it's a nurse's autograph book, and this was quite a common phenomenon. The soldiers, when they were recuperating, the nurse would have an autograph book and the, the soldier would write something in there. And more often than not, what they would attempt to write is a, is a short poem. Um, but this, as you can see, why I like this, is written by Private uh, Talbot, I believe, um, from Liverpool. And Nurse Darlow is a lady so happy, bright and fair. There's not one in this hospital with her you can compare actually quite simple as a verse as a stanza it works three to four stresses trots along and you can perhaps see the inspiration there probably from a song it it, it trots like a song so one can imagine why a private might be able to do this in in 1916 the second stanza reveals his less uh, ability (laughs) as a poet but if you go into that ward you will see with her eyes so correct his spelling blue a pretty little VAD nurse, and her name is Nurse Barlow, hanging that line, so happy, good and true, which we would obviously, if Sassoon had had his way, he would have gotten corrected that, an <laughs> ultimate line. But the point is, there is a lot of poetry in the war, because people felt they could do it, and people felt they were obliged to do it, and so on. And I think that is something we should bear in mind when we constantly talk about the, uh, the major poets, which we will do, of course. Um, on your handout... 
I've included uh, poets from a couple of gentlemen which probably uh, we wouldn't have discussed if I hadn't just included this little talk on popular poetry. Uh, Oxenham and Studdick Kennedy. Studdick Kennedy, more commonly known as Woodbine Willie. Um, John Oxenham, uh, I've put three poems there. Um, the first one, Hymn for the Men at the Front, uh, is probably the most popular poem of the war. I believe it's having sold about 8 million copies. And if you read the poem, you may think, oh, heavens, why, why would anyone want to resurrect this, or why did anyone buy it? But the poem does read like a hymn. The first stanza, Lord God of hosts, whose mighty hand dominion holds on sea and land, in peace and war they will we see, shaping the larger liberty. It is the language of the prayer, of the liturgy. And if you look towards the end of the second stanza, the lines almost are from a hymn. It reminds me, for those in peril on the sea, Oh, here are people's prayers for those who fearless face their country's foes. You could sing it to the music. And then we start the third stanza, For those who weak and broken lie in weariness and agony. Now, I put John Oxenham in there because he is a popular poet. He is appearing now in anthologies. He kind of got neglected, certainly, because he wasn't fitting the, the message that many anthologists and editors wanted to do, but he is now reappearing. If nothing else, to say, like Jane was saying, this is a representation of what people found important at the time. And the reason why Oxenham is important, partly because he marketed very well in little booklets you could send out to the poets on the front, but because those last two stanzas in that poem encapsulate what he tries to do he provides you and the soldier with consolation usually drawing on a spiritual message and that and in that sense uh, Woodbine Willie is is very similar he was of course a chaplain uh, the other two poems I just put in there uh, the second one I'm glad I put it in because of John's point earlier Christ's all picking up this idea that the soldiers were often linked to Christ and the opening stanza there ye are all Christ's all in this yourself surrender True sons of God in seeking not your own. Yours now the hardships, yours shall be the splendour of the great triumph and the king's well done. Playing on the king being the king, King George, but also the king, the king of hosts. But the idea there is that you're Christ because you are sacrificing yourself for the people at home or your loved ones and so on. And then finally, I put in Easter Sunday 1916. Not a poem I'd really read too much, but I was interested in it because Gerald's talk um, tomorrow... Uh, obviously Easter 1916 immediately flags to us what was happening in Ireland and you can read this poem in a couple of ways Oxenham completely ignores what's happening in Ireland or actually he is beginning to there's an element of despair creeping in that things are going so wrong that there even there is what was perhaps thought as uh, part of Britain is uh, now turning on, on the, uh, the mother country and then the final poem I've just put in there, The Secret, uh, from Woodbine Willie. Um, quite, quite fun poems, Woodbine Willie. They're not great, I have to say. But I think they're very interesting when you start to look at Owen and Sassoon because of, note the use of colloquial language, the attempt to capture the soldiers speak quite badly, I have to say. Um, what some people have described as Kipling-esque. Um, some people have argued that, that Owen and Sassoon were influenced by uh, Kennedy. I'm not certain. Perhaps it might be Kipling-esque. But I like this because it ends with, with a bit of humour. And sometimes we, we forget that war poetry can have humour. Uh, if you look towards the end of the poem, if old Fritz has been and got ye and ye have to stick the pain, if you haven't got a fag on, 
why it hurts as bad again. When there ain't no fags to pull it, then there's terror in the ranks. That's the secret. Yes, I'll have one. Just a fag and many tanks, not thanks and tanks. So I just wanted to leave it there to say that we, we haven't got time to cover these, these poets and all the other poets there, but bear in mind this was a vast corpus, as many of the uh, speakers have already said. So when we're looking back, we're looking back from the 21st century, but we have to look back at that time and try to imagine what it was like to live then and what they found particularly important. And I'll pick up this in my, my last brief presentation on uh, poetry and history towards the end of the day. Thank you very much. So, Tim Coffey.